Hey, good morning, Vineyard family. My name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to the South Suburban Vineyard Church's online service. A uh, special welcome to any guests who are visiting with us today and our regulars alike. We're so glad that you're here uh, for our online service. Hey, before I begin the message today, I just want to give a special shout out to one of uh, uh, one of our team members, Mandy Speakman, who serves as our social media director. She and her crew are responsible for our church's social media presence and uh, the engagement for our online service. So if you see down in the chat, someone is commenting as the South Suburban Vineyard Church, that's usually Mandy and her team. And so she's a great host for our online service and she helps really tie what we do here um, on Sunday mornings and make that stretch all throughout the week um, through our sermon content, all sorts of things, encouraging notes and scriptures and worship videos and all those sorts of things. And we could not survive in a global pandemic where much of the year we've spent online only without a strong social media uh, presence and, our, um, and that's because of our uh, social media director. So would you just give Mandy Speakman some love in the comments today because she's doing a fantastic job and she's an awesome member of our team. So thank you so much, Mandy. Well, let me get into the word today. Uh, it's the beginning of December, which marks for us the beginning of the Christmas holiday season. And according to the Christmas songs, this is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, right? Uh, but honestly, if our Thanksgiving holiday was any indication of what we can expect Christmas to look like, many of us might expect that this Christmas season will be much less than the most wonderful time of the year because many of us, our Thanksgiving holiday was marked by no traveling. Many of us opted not to gather with our family because we were trying to flatten this COVID curve with uh, infection rates going up and the death rate going up, all the fear and restrictions. We might be tempted to think that Christmas might be in jeopardy. Uh, but I don't think that Christmas is in jeopardy at all. While Christmas will likely be less complicated this year, lacking some of the normal trappings and extras and fixings that we've become accustomed to, I think that maybe having a less complicated Christmas, a simpler Christmas, is just what we need. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that there's something wrong with some of the extras and some of the trappings. Uh, I think that mostly those are good things, but I think that those things can distract us and can serve to take our eyes off the main thing, and that is Christ. Jesus Christ, who, as we have said for years, is the reason for this season. And so for this reason, I'm starting a new Advent preaching series this morning that I'm simply calling Simple Christmas, simple Christmas. And last week we began the Advent season and Advent is a season observed by Christians all over the world. It's a time of expected waiting and preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus at Christmas time. And during Advent, we thank God for Christ's first coming. We celebrate God's presence among us today as he is near us, that he's not far from us, unacquainted with our suffering and our pain. He's not unfamiliar with the things that we're dealing with, which I'm especially grateful for, especially in a moment that, like the moment that we're in right now. Um, but that his presence is here and now is really something that we celebrate during the season of Advent. 
And not only that, we prepare our hearts, we prepare our minds, we fix our eyes on the fact that Christ is coming again. And so we prepare ourselves during Advent for Christ's second coming. And I think one of the blessings of this crisis moment that we're in, I'm speaking specifically about COVID and all the other things that are just have thrown us <laughs> off what seems normal, is that it can serve to help us limit our distractions. Again, there's a great scaling down of things as we find ourselves in crisis. There are restrictions and there are things that we have to cut, things that we're normally uh, pretty used to, but I think that that's a good thing and that sometimes we need some of those distractions cleared out. But one of the things that can distract us most as people of faith are our idols. And our idols are the things, often good things, that just grow too large in our lives and serve to help us take our eyes off of the main thing. And that is Jesus. That's God and his plan for our life and the mission that he's given us, oftentimes these good things, these idols, take the place of God. They just sort of move up the list of priorities. And before long, we're worshiping created things rather than the created. We're focusing on the peripheral things instead of the main things. And so I think that God wants to deal with that today. I'm simply calling this message this morning, Distracted by our idols. And we're going to kick off our Advent series with this. I'm going to be in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. So go ahead and meet me in Jeremiah this morning. Jeremiah chapter two, as we discuss being distracted by our idols. And while you find that, Jeremiah chapter two, I'm going to I'll open in a word of prayer. So Lord, I thank you so much for this season. I thank you for even the hidden things that this season can teach us. I thank you for even some of the difficult things, because I know, Lord, that there is a lesson for us, even in the chaos, even in the trials, even in the discomfort. Lord, you have something to teach us about you and you have something to teach us about ourselves. And so this morning, Father, may we give you our full attention. May we fix our eyes on you and may you help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Father, may the book come alive today as we look into your word. Father, move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Jeremiah chapter two, we're gonna start this morning at verse four. And as I have been saying over the last couple of weeks, as I read this passage, I want, to pay, I want you to pay close attention to this text as I read it. I want you to notice what you notice and I want you to notice what stands out as we go along and feel free to, to type it down in the chat. What stands out? What do you notice as I read this passage? Jeremiah chapter two, I wanna start at verse four. Listen to the word of the Lord, people of Jacob, all you families of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far from me? They worshiped worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us safely out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and death where no one lives or travels? And when I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its bounty and goodness, you defiled my land and corrupted the possessions I had promised you. 
The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignored me and the rulers turned against me and the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, wasting their time on worthless idols. Verse nine, therefore I will bring my case against you, says the Lord. I will even bring charges against your children's children in the years to come. Go west and look in the land of Cyprus. Go east and search through the land of Kedar. Has anyone ever heard of anything as strange as this? Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they are not gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. Verse 13, for my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. A nice, warm, fuzzy text to open the Advent teaching series. I know it's not warm. I know it's not fuzzy, but you probably made some observations. What did you notice? What stood out? Go ahead and share it in the chat as we work along here. So what's going on? God is speaking to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. And if you're unfamiliar with the prophets, the prophets were simply men and women who spoke on God's behalf to God's people. And sometimes the prophet brought words of encouragement, words of good tidings from the Lord. But most often, especially in the Old Testament, the prophets came with strong words of rebuke and correction and promises of judgment if the people didn't straighten up. And so this is one of those kinds of messages where the prophet is coming to bring a hard, sharp word from God to the people of God. And so these, uh, this particular prophetic um, passage is from God to the families of Israel, more specifically the descendants of those who had been miraculously delivered out of slavery in Egypt. And not only had they been delivered from slavery, but they were sustained for many years in the desert by God's providence and his care. And not only were they sustained for all those years in the desert, they were brought into the land that God promised them, a land of bounty and goodness. And this is who God is addressing here through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like God has a problem with these guys. Like this isn't like a pat on the back text, like God has an issue with his people. And it feels like to me, God is asking sort of that rhetorical question that our parents and our teachers used to ask, ask us when we were cutting up in school or cutting up at home or we were acting a fool. Uh, some of our teachers or parents would say, what's wrong with you? Or, or what's your problem? Or what's your deal? Now to the uninitiated, this might sound like a question that merits a response. This might sound like an inquiry into whether or not you're okay or not, right? This might sound like curiosity concerning what might be the matter. But for those of us who know, we know that this is not really a question that they're looking for an answer for. This is usually a statement, a statement that usually says, hey, you have lost your mind. Now you're really tripping right now. You are off the rails. And what's clear to me and might be clear to you is that God has a bone to pick with his people. What's clear to me is that God is 
offended by how his people are carrying on. And I have learned to pay close attention when God's offended by something that I've done or left undone, when God is offended by the people that he's created to please him and to worship him and to give their lives in service to him. When God is offended, we better pay attention. We better lean in. And I think that maybe we can see ourselves in this text today if we're honest and if we have eyes to see. And I think that God is offended by two things that I want to unpack as we walk through this text. The first thing I see is that God is offended by their indifference. God is offended by their indifference. Now, this is no small statement. This is a weighty matter that merits our attention. And I think that God is also speak. This text can speak to us because like this is a reflection of us at times. God is offended by their indifference. Let's look at verse five. This is what the Lord says. Why? Excuse me. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far from me? They worshiped idols only to become worthless themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but this this seems like strong rhetoric here. This is a rhetorical question that God's asking to his people, the, 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 I said the descendants of his people. What, what, what did your ancestors find so wrong with me that they had to abandon me and not follow me and be devoted to me? This, feel, this feels kind of heavy handed, right? But he doesn't stop there. He continues in verse six. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us safely out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, a land of deserts and pits and a land of drought and death where no one lives or travels? Now, pay attention to this because God is upset and it's important that he that we know why he's upset. I said, why isn't somebody inquiring as to how I did these mighty, mighty things on your behalf? Why is there so much indifference concerning the, the things that I've done and the ways that I have showed up? Like God has a problem with the fact that he's brought them out of slavery in Egypt, which is a big deal. But perhaps bigger than that, for 40 years in the desert, God says your ancestors had kids in that desert and their kids had kids in that desert. And all those years they ate and they drank and they were sustained by my mighty hand in a place that cannot sustain human life. Scripture says a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and death where no one lives or even travels. The Lord says, this is a remarkable thing that I did here. Brought you out of slavery. You spent 40 years and got fat and drank well and ate well in a place where people are supposed to die after just a short amount of time. This is a big deal. And what God is saying is you're not asking enough questions. You're not curious enough as to how I did it. There's not enough praise and thanks and gratitude for what I've done for you. Where are the questions? Where are the prayers? Where is the gratitude, right? And what is God saying? I did awesome things for my people, and yet there is no awe. I did wonderful things for my people, and yet there is no wonder 
God is offended. Now let's bring this to us today. Because I think this can speak to us now because we ourselves are in a bit of a desert, COVID desert. We ourselves are in a bit of a crisis. And though things aren't the way we want them to be, and though things aren't shaking out the way we want them to shake out, and though God may not be showing up in the way we want him to show up, and when he wants us to show up, we have to have eyes to see that it is God's mighty hand that is sustaining us. I don't know about you, but when I look back over my life, I look, uh, I behold some deserts and some barren places that I should not have survived. Some things I should not come out alive. Some circumstances, many of them predicaments I put myself in that I was sustained by the Lord and rescued by the Lord. God did some things in my life. He sustained me and he is sustaining me now. He's sustaining this church. He's sustaining you. That we are just kind of indifferent about. We're not curious enough and we're not thankful enough. We're not in, in, in awe and there's no wonder. And God is bothered by our indifference. He's troubled by it. I liken it to a person who is at a, at a magnificent fireworks show, right? And all these elaborate fireworks are flying off overhead with vibrant colors and Beautiful sights and sounds and the crowd around us goes, ooh and ah, but here I am, that person. Instead, I'm looking down at my phone. I'm distracted by my phone while all these amazing things are going on around me. I'm indifferent to the wonder and the awe, mainly because I don't see it. And I don't see it because I am distracted. I'm distracted. And that distraction leads to my indifference. Now, if we want to discover the second thing that God is offended by, we need to understand and zero in on what it is that's distracting us. The truth is we are distracted by our idols. Which brings us to the second thing. God is offended here, not just because we're indifferent, He's offended because we are distracted by our idolatry, which leads to our indifference, which keeps us from seeing with clear eyes what he's actually doing around us. We are distracted by our idols, and this is a big deal. God hates our idols. Let me say that again. God hates our idols because they are distractions. They are robbers, right? And if you want some, you know, something in black and white that helps you understand just how much God hates our idols, go to the Ten Commandments. Go to where God gives his people the law. The first thing that comes out of his mouth as he's trying to teach his people how to keep their distinctiveness and how to live a life that pleases God is found at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. 
God says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. He keeps bringing that up. You must not have any God other than me. He continues in verse four, you must not make for yourself any idol of any kind or any image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God who will not tolerate your affections for any other God. Could he have made this any clearer? I think not. Now, why does God press in so strongly about this? Here's why. God knows that he created us humans. He created us to worship. We are hardwired to worship. He created us. He designed us to fix our eyes on something, namely him, and to worship him. What he also knows is that that hardwiring can easily be corrupted. Our eyes can easily get fixed on something else. Our affections can easily drift from him to something else. And because he knows that, he instructs us. It's almost a warning that says, listen, you will be tempted. There will be other things that will vie for your attention and your affection. Don't go for it. Those things can't satisfy. Those things can't sustain. Those things are not the bringers and the givers of life. Fix your eyes on me. Make sure you have no other gods because he knows us because he made us, right? And what God knows is that whatever is first in our life, whatever our eyes are fixed on, that will be what we worship. In the whole list of things that we like and that we love and that we think are wonderful, what God knows is that whatever is first on that list, even if he's a close second, he knows that that will have your heart. That, if it's not God, will have you distracted and it will be unto your destruction. It will be unto my destruction. And so our idolatry is a big deal to God. Three times in this text, and this isn't a long text, he mentions our worthless idols. Verse five, they worship worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. Verse eight, the priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignore me. The rulers turned against me and the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, wasting time on their what? Worthless idols. And finally in verse 11, has any nation ever traded its God for new ones? even though they are not gods at all, yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for what? Worthless, worthless idols. God is bothered by this for many reasons. Chief among them, this is a violation of his law. God's bothered by our indifference and our distraction, particularly our distraction, our preoccupation with our idols. Why? Because it's God who's done the heavy lifting in our lives. It's God who's fully aware that he has brought us out of our slavery, right? He has sustained us throughout the wilderness seasons of our lives. He has lifted us up when we've fallen down. He has invested in us and yet, the first chance we get, we are distracted by something that shines and glistens off in the distance. 
Yeah, I'm talking about the idols because the idols aren't dull. They're always something that shines and has a wonderful but yet thin veneer on the exterior that always uh, uh, threatens to steal our gaze from the things that matter. Our idols shine and glisten, but they're empty. Uh, our idols shine and glisten, but they're powerless. They're toothless. They don't have any might. They don't have any power. They don't have any wisdom. They can't protect us. They are not sovereign. They can't see around corners or protect us from danger. They can't rescue or save. They're just shiny. They're just shiny. Adorned with precious stones, very attractive, able to lure us away and steal our gaze. They're empty. And they eventually let you down. The longer I live this life, the longer I try to grow and press into wisdom, the more I learn and see that the things and people that are most reliable, most substantive, most worthwhile, the things that last are typically not the shiny things that glisten and are flashy. It's often the simple. There it is. The simple, understated, steady things that are worth my time, my attention, my focus, my, my affection. Because the flashy stuff almost always breaks down, right? The flashy stuff, our idols, they almost always overpromise and underdeliver. The flashy things always fade and spoil and fails to hold up, right? This is true in many realms of life, but it is the, it is the, it is the simple and understated and steady things that tend to hold up. And as you look back over your life and as I look back over mine, who's been faithful? Who's come through? Who has rescued? Who has provided? Who has sustained? It's never been the flashy, sparkly idols. It's God. It's God who is sustaining us even now, not the idols. It's God. It's God. And so our distraction, particularly by our idols, is particularly bothersome to the Lord. And oftentimes, as God pours out his judgment for our idolatry or hands us over to the things uh, that are distracting us, it's often a means to, 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 to like put us in time out, right? To strip down some of the things that are distracting us so that we can really fix our eyes on what's important. And what's striking to me in this text is that God says through the prophet Jeremiah in verse nine, therefore I will bring my case against you. The last person you want to bring a case against you is God Almighty. Continues in verse 12, the heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay. We have gone and surprised the unsurprisable God by our distraction and our idolatry. God's upset. He's 
bothered by this. How's that for an Advent sermon? How's that to kick off the Christmas season, right? You say, well, preacher, you told me the problem, but what's the solution? Verse 13 says, for my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that cannot hold water at all. And then this powerful picture and in this careful framing of where we've gone wrong, I believe, are the implications for how we fix it. God lays out very clearly two things at the end of this text that clearly and carefully describe what we've done wrong. He says we've abandoned God, the fountain of living water, which is quite silly thing to do if you're in a desert. You don't know where your water is coming from, right? If you're in the wilderness, the last thing you want to do is abandon the living water that can sustain you. And yet, this is what we've done. We've abandoned God. We've forsaken the thing can, that can sustain us because we've gotten distracted by something that shines off in the distance. And not only have we abandoned our life source, it's water. We have dug for ourselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water. And think of a cistern as just kind of like a clay pot that, that, that is designed to hold water. But God describes the pots that we've built, the cisterns that we dug as cracked, as faulty containers to hold our valuables. Now, we've done two things. We've forsaken uh, 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 the, the fountain of life that would sustain us, which means that we're on our own. We've got to gather our own sustenance. And on top of all of that, we've built a container for the little scraps that we've built, and we put our hope in something that will leak all over the place, that won't hold anything. This is the picture of you and me indifferent, distracted by our idols, hoping and trusting in things that will never sustain us because we've walked away from the only giver of life that can sustain. This is our problem. And we've gone after the idols because we find comfort in them. They are things that we can manipulate, things that we can hold, things that we can move about. We can't move God about. We can't make, make him bend to our whims. But these idols are more manageable. And so we've, we've taken comfort in them. But the implication here is that if we want to turn this thing around, that we have to do the opposite of abandoning God, and that is to turn our eyes back to him and to re-engage the fountain of life that will never, ever, ever run dry. What we did to get ourselves in this mess is we turned our back on God and our face toward the idols. The way we fix that is we turn our back to the idols and our face toward God because he will sustain us. What we've done is we built ourselves a cracked cistern that won't hold up, forsaking the sure thing that is God, 
we must now turn our back to all the faulty things that we're leaning in and hoping will hold up and turn our face back to the things sure. And you might say, Pastor, that sounds good and everything, but how might I identify the idols in my life? How would I uh, identify the idols? I would ask you to ask yourself, what do you hope in? And if that's not specific enough, ask yourself, what are the things in my life that if they were taken away, I might consider it's over? Like that person, I need that person in my life. I need my spouse, I, I need my kid. If something happened to them, it's over. Like I need my career. If something happened to my career, it's over for me. I need this thing or, or that thing. I'm hoping in this and that. And if I don't get that, or if that thing should be taken away from me, then why even live? And even as I describe that some people and places and things and even aspirations come to mind because those are the things that you have fixed your eyes on. Those are good things, but in the grand scheme, they are, they, they are broken cisterns that won't hold up to the elements in time. And it's true for those of us who believe this, that the only thing that I cannot do without is the Lord. The only thing that if it were taken from me, it would be over for me is God and his love for me, his plan for me, his divine protection and provision. It, it, that's the only thing in our life that if it were taken away, it'd be over. And our idols want to nudge into that place. And oftentimes we let them. How do we fix this? We turn our backs to our idols and our face toward the fountain of living water. And we do away with the cisterns that we've made. And we, we, we place our hope in God as the container, the airtight container that can hold my life and my future and my family. Where are you today? Are you distracted by idols? You feel like Christmas is in jeopardy because of all the things that we won't be able to do. You feel like your life's in jeopardy because there's been a great scaling back. Listen, let's use this as an opportunity to fix our gaze on the main thing. That's God, his plan of salvation for us through his son, Jesus. And let us spend this week ruthlessly searching for our idols that we might destroy them, that we might turn our backs to them and fix our gaze on the sustainer of life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this season. And yet again, I even thank you for the ways that this season has been complicated and all the ways that we're forced to simplify and declutter and uncomplicate our lives. Father, would you shine a light on our idols? My guess is that you've already been doing that as, as, as we've been going through this today. But this week, would you just do go to war with our idols, Lord, and tear down anything that would try to take your place? May our hope be firmly placed in you, even as we experience uh, this wilderness and even as we go through the unknown, will we fix our eyes and our gaze, put our hope on you. Come, Holy Spirit. 
Do what only you can do. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.